0: Robert Hain had his eye on a lot of things when he stepped on the Senate floor January 29, 1830. He was a veteran of the War of 1812. And his state, South Carolina, had sent him to the Senate with the job of protecting its interests as any senator does then, and really now, but a little more so because the state's champion, John Calhoun, was sitting in the Senate silenced. That's because he had a gavel in his hand. He had been elected vice president. And therefore, just was presiding over the body which he was not welcome to speak or opine on matters before that body's consideration. So it was Robert Hayne to speak as what was really a minor matter, small and slender, this from Senate.gov, possessed of a refined and charming manner. Robert Hayne entered the Senate when he was only 31 years old, one year above the constitutional threshold for Senate service. Now 38, Hain entered the PAC chamber to launch a reply to one of his fellow senators. Appearing boyish in a suit of coarse homespun, Hain spoke for several hours and then, following a long weekend, concluded his remarks. Hain eyed Daniel Webster, the senator from Massachusetts, who had artfully defended his state's interest as well. Hain sought to challenge His renowned voice in speaking for his own region, in a sense, he'd call him out. To what Senate.gov says, he responded in a tone of scarcely suppressed bitterness and rage. And received the perpetual encouragement and handwritten notes from the Vice President. This is really a minor matter. It's about whether land sales should be reviewed by the federal government. He argues states should have the right to control their own lands within their territories and set aside federal laws if they believed it were not in their best interest. Webster, the senator from Massachusetts, responds. But when he responds, he shifts the debate just from this minor issue to something more. The New Englanders, Webster and Cho, had gotten a tariff recently, which Haynes and other Southerners objected to. It passed. Now, there was an effort to have the federal government review this process of selling lands. It's a minor one. A senator from Connecticut, Senator Samuel Foote, suggested. Western representatives didn't like it, particularly Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri. And here, Haynes Calhoun and other Southern senators saw a chance to ally the West with the South against what you would have called then the Eastern interest, but you can really say Northern. But instead of addressing Foote's resolution, Haynes decided to address his comments to New England's spokesperson. I refuse to be lectured by a senator from Massachusetts, Haynes said. He impugned Southern honor when he compared Ohio's boom to Kentucky's slower population and money growth and blamed it on slavery. The profits of the slave trade were not confined to the South. The southern states, the states north of the Potomac, built the ships, reaped the profits of the trade, and used the materials from the labor, even if they now criticized the source or the method of that labor. Slavery was foisted upon the South that Haynes' spread was repugnant, but accepted in all regions at this point that people with different colored skin were lesser, somehow. Disqualified, Haynes said, from the blessings of freedom. So it was a responsibility of the South. After all, people of color in Philadelphia, New York, and Boston retreated poorly in the North. Is that to be an example that we'll follow? Webster's great region absolutely destitute of comforts. They were poor. All of that was prologue to his real issue of rising to speak was to set the record straight about what the Constitution meant. Webster and his allies were trying to enlarge the national government to benefit New England, but all the Constitution calls for is union. And indeed, a more perfect one at that. How is that done? Promoting domestic tranquility, establishing justice, and securing the blessings of liberty. That's it. It's not to draw power from the states. Webster, he said, talked a lot about union, but it was a guise. Who are the real defenders of the union, Haynes says? The real defenders are those who will confine the federal government strictly within the limits prescribed by the Constitution. Or are we to say that the defenders of the Constitution are those who favor consolidation, national government, who are constantly stealing power from the states? This is the term he uses. Stealing power from the states, who undertook to regulate the whole industry and capital of the country under one national government. With this, he personalized his message. I have no animus towards Webster, the senator from Massachusetts. And in the debate that's followed, Hain is going to say several times, He has no animus against Webster. Webster is going to say several times he has no animus against Tain, But from all of the subtext, it appears to be the opposite. This controversy is not of my seeking. The gentleman has thought proper for purposes best known to himself to strike the South through me, the most unworthy of her servants. He has crossed the border. He has invaded the state of South Carolina says, is making war upon her citizens and endeavoring to overthrow her principles and her institutions. Sir, when the gentleman provokes me to such a conflict, I meet him at the threshold. I will struggle while I have life for our altars and our firesides, and if God gives me the strength, I will drive back the invader discomfited. Nor shall I stop there, so, keep in mind, this invasion he's talking about is Webster making a speech. Nor shall I stop there, Haines says. If the gentleman provokes the war, he shall have war. Sir, I will not stop at the border. I will carry the war into the enemy's territory and not consent to lay down my arms. He's not talking about any real war. He's not even predicting a civil war. You know, we're the the audience sitting here to this, and we know what's to come. He does not. He's talking about the Senate debate and using a metaphor, explaining, though, why he was turning the foot resolution, a seemingly minor matter, into a larger debate of North and South. He was exposing the real problem, not merely meeting the enemy at the threshold, but crossing the border, in other words. Hain had fired this shot. It wasn't the first shot. Uh, sometimes in history, this is known as Webster's reply to Hain. But Hayne was replying to Webster, too. Actually, there's going to be several speeches. Haynes had fired the first shot. Thomas R. Benton called him a gallant patriot of the South. The Southern press compared him to a Burke and other great orators that would have been celebrated at the time. And a lot of people were shocked by the boldness of what Hain had said it seemed to be so true because it was so confidently asserted what he had said about government and the Constitution. Daniel Webster sat impassively nearby, making notes and predicting to his allies that when the time came, he would grind hayne as fine as a pinch of snuff. Uh, Those who would agree more with Webster were a little worried. They sought him out. Here's what Senate.gov says. Some of Webster's personal friends had felt nervous over what appeared to them too hasty, a period for preparation. One of the people that had sought out Daniel Webster the night before was Edward Everett. And he's a budding orator who's going to go on to become vice presidential candidate 30 years later. He's also the guy that makes the speech at Gettysburg before Lincoln, the one nobody remembers, but put that aside. Here, he's a friend of Webster and admirer, and he seeks him out. Look, what are you going to do? And he finds Webster very calm very self-possessed, too much as far as Everett's concerned. He needed to be aware that this was the speech of his career to answer. But Webster told him. It wasn't the attack on him that compelled him to answer, but Colonel Hayne was attempting to change the government structure, to change it to the government, if it could be called that, that existed under the Confederation. He entered the Senate on the next day with slow and stately step and took his seat as though unconscious of the loud buzz of expectant interest. He was dressed with scrupulous care in a blue coat with metal buttons and a buff vest. Blue and buff are the colors of Continental Soldiers. As Webster rose to speak, it had to be a defining moment. And some knew that Webster, though a senator from Massachusetts, was not like an Adams. He wasn't a leading Boston man. He wasn't one of the original from the Pilgrim families. His father was a poor farmer on the border of Canada in New Hampshire, He had managed, save, to send his son to school, and was perhaps disappointed he did, because Webster gave up what his father thought was a well-paying clerk job in order to practice law. He liked arguments. He liked debates. When he told his father of his intentions, his father said, Your mother, who had long passed away, always said you would amount to nothing. But Webster succeeded beyond anyone's imagination. He had a skill that would soon be on display when he spoke out against the War of 1812. More than that, the embargo, which caused depression in New England around the time of that late war. He spoke at July 4th in Rockingham, Massachusetts, where he was practicing law. And struggling at that time, borrowing money from his brother in order to pay his debts so that he could pursue his dream. He didn't want to be a clerk writing down other lawyers' statements. He wanted to be one of those lawyers. Now was his chance as he spoke to the assemblage. Commerce is a great and essential, an essential practice, he said, of Madison's embargo. New England survives at the sea. Its interests are blended with everything, and it could not be like Pennsylvania or Virginia living off their farms. Habits that are confirmed by two centuries are not to be changed. We assented to the national constitution to protect and further our commerce, our commercial interests, not to stop it. Impression of sailors, he admitted, is a terrible crime being committed by Britain. But it happened during Washington's presidency, and that great man did not see it as the great evil others see. In fact, the great deal of seafarers are in the Northeast, and this region is not for this war fighting on their behalf. What's going on? Why are the cries for justice coming from those so farthest from the sea? This speech is made a memorial. It's printed in newspapers all around New England, and it's sent to President Madison. Webster is become so famous that this speech is so regarded that Webster's immediately sent to Congress, representing the district he spoke in, now representing Massachusetts. And he'll continue to be a war critic. His speech on the floor of the House against conscription, against the draft, with images of wives, of mothers, of sisters, ashamed at their Congress. The horrible lottery they were playing, the blood dice they were rolling. Constitution does not give Congress the right to dragoon the unwilling. Congress has the power to borrow money, not to force loans, Webster said. Who shall describe the distress and anguish which they will spread over these hills and valleys, where heretofore had been accustomed to security and happiness? Who shall indeed? House members didn't want to, that's for sure, and they listened to Webster breaking up Republicans and stopping a conscription for the War of 1812. Webster would also be known for defending the Bank of the United States in court, and in a famous Supreme Court case of even making John Marshall cry as he defended a small college from being wiped out by a state legislature in a famous and still precedent-setting case. In his tongue, a minor legal matter was turned into Extinguishing the light of science and knowledge, Caesar's stabbing, and the cruel power of giants over undefended men. This is why Calhoun and Hain wanted to take on the problem at the source. Webster was so good, he could put out an argument that would go beyond the regional politics of the day and actually win pliable senators and people. When Webster spoke, there were others in the Senate in 1830. William Rufus King, a future vice president. Theodore Frelinghuysen, a previous vice presidential candidate. William Hendricks of Indiana, uncle to the future vice president. Hugh Lawson White, who'd run for president. John Tyler of Virginia, who'd become vice president. A loyal Jacksonian, now, but soon he would turn against Jackson. Horatio Seymour of New Hampshire, great uncle to the future presidential candidate and governor of New York. Edward Livingston, once of New York, now representing Louisiana as a senator, nemesis of Thomas Jefferson, but also the creator of Louisiana's celebrated civil code. Malin Dickinson, senator from New Jersey once as a young man, a cavalryman in Washington's crusade to put down the Whiskey Rebellion, now a senator from his state. In all, 48 senators from 24 states would listen to Hain and Webster. And the stakes could not be higher. There were some northern states. Again, they'd call it eastern states. There were southern states, and then there were western states. And the job of both Hain and Webster was to try to win over the West. For Webster, it was bringing up slavery as much as possible, which the West did not generally support. For the South, it was bringing up issues of control, like national control over federal lands. Webster spoke the next day and first took on the fringe parts of his argument that he had been disrespectful to Southerners. I partake in their pride. I proclaim them, countrymen, one and all, the Laurens, the Rutlitches, the Sons of South Carolina, who were patriots who signed the Declaration of Independence and fought in the Army. I proclaim them, one and all, as my countrymen, Americans all whose fame is no more to be hemmed in by state lines than their talents and patriotism were capable of being circumscribed within the narrow limits. But, Mr. President, I shall enter no encomium upon Massachusetts. She needs none. There she is. Behold her, and judge for yourselves. There is her history. The world knows it by heart. There is Boston and Concord and Lexington and Bunker Hill. And there they will remain forever. The bones of her sons, falling in the great struggle for independence, now lie mingled with the soil of every state. From New England to Georgia, and there they will lie forever. And, sir, where American liberty raised its first voice, and where its youth was nurtured and sustained, there it still lives in the strength of its manhood, and in the full of its original spirit. Webster then stops. And he looks around the Senate. It's to state and to defend what I conceive to be the true principles of the Constitution under which we are assembled that I speak today. I understand that the honorable gentleman from South Carolina, that he maintains that it is a right of the state legislatures to interfere whenever in their judgment this government transcends its constitutional limits and to arrest the operation of its laws. I understand him to maintain this, his right, a right existing under the Constitution, not as a right to overthrow it on the ground of extreme necessity, such as would justify violent revolution. I understand him to maintain an authority on the part of the states, thus to interfere for the purpose of correcting the exercise of power by the general government, checking it, and compelling it to conform to their opinion to the extent of its powers." He pauses. Is there any objection? Hayne does not object. We, sir, who oppose the Carolina Doctrine, do not deny that the people may, if they choose, throw off any government when it has become oppressive and intolerable to erect a better instead. We all know that civil institutions are established for the public benefit and that when they cease to answer the ends of their existence, they may be changed. I understand the gentleman to maintain that without revolution, without civil commotion, a remedy for supposed abuse and transgressions of the power of the general government lies in a direct appeal to the interference of the state government. Hain actually interjects that he agrees. So Sir Webster says that I understood the gentleman and I am happy to find that I did not misunderstand him. What he contends is that it is constitutional to interrupt the administration of the Constitution itself in the hands of those who are chosen and sworn to administer it by the direct interference in the form of law of the states in virtue of their sovereign capacity. Webster granted. The question is, whose prerogative it is to decide on the constitutionality or unconstitutionality of the laws? Haynes said it's the state's. I say it's the federal government, particularly the judiciary. Whose agent is it, the national government? Whose agent is it? Is it the creation of the state legislatures? Or the creation of the people? If the government of the United States be the agent of the state governments, then they may control it, provided they can agree in the matter of controlling it. If it be the agent of the people, then the people alone can control it, restrain it, modify it, and reform it. It is, sir, the people's constitution, I believe, the people's government, made for the people, made by the people, and answerable to those people. In Carolina, the tariff is a palpable, deliberate usurpation. Carolina, therefore, may nullify it, according to Haynes' description, and refuse to pay it. In Pennsylvania, its constitution, and there the duties are to be paid. And yet we live under a government of uniform laws and under a constitution which contains an express provision, as it happens, that all duties shall be equal in all the states. Does this not approach absurdity? If there be no power to settle questions independent of either of the states, is not the whole Union a rope of sand? Are we not thrown back again precisely upon the old Confederation? The people had rejected the Confederation by ratifying the Constitution. People had had quite enough of that kind of government under the Confederacy. and at The East, the obnoxious, the rebuke, the always reproached East. We have come in, sir, on this debate for more than a common share of accusation and attack. If the honorable member from South Carolina was not our original accuser, he has yet recited the indictment against us with the air and tone of a public prosecutor. And the cause of all this narrow and selfish policy, the gentleman finds it, the tariff. I think he called the accursive policy of the tariff. Webster talks about Massachusetts during the late war suffering, responding to the embargo law, a law that beggared thousands of families and hundreds of thousands of individuals. The region was convinced that that law, the embargo law, was unconstitutional, but the people of New England did not pursue a path of nullification, an act that would have caused the union to be scattered to the four winds, but rather went the old-fashioned way. They went to the law. They lost, sir. We believed the embargo to be constitutional, unconstitutional, but still that was a matter of opinion. We did not take the law in our own hands because we did not wish to bring about a revolution nor break up the union. Those are the only available options, he is arguing. Either the people submit to federal law the constitutionally of which is upheld by the court, or they revolt. There is no middle ground. Sir, let me recur to pleasing recollections. Let me indulge in refreshing remembrance of the past. Let me remind you that in the early times, no states cherished greater harmony, both of principle and feeling, than Massachusetts and South Carolina. Would to God that harmony might again return. Shoulder to shoulder, they went through the revolution. Hand in hand, they stood round the administration of Washington, and felt his own great arm lean on them for support. Unkind feeling if it exists, alienation and distrust are the growth, unnatural to such soils, of false principles since sown. General Washington's administration was steadily and zealously maintained, as we all know, by New England. It was violently opposed elsewhere. We know in what quarter he had the most earnest, constant, and preserving support in all his great and leading measures. We know where his private and personal character was held in the highest degree of attachment and veneration. And we know, too, where his measures were opposed, his services slighted, and his character vilified. We know... Or we might know, if we turn to the journals, who expressed respect, gratitude, and regret when he retired from the chief magistrate, and who refused to express either respect, gratitude, or regret. I shall not open those journals. Now, it's not a bad point for Webster's position here, because it is very true that George Washington, though of Virginia, Was more of the Federalist kind of mentality and had his support in New England. His vice president was Adams from New England. And the newspapers, particularly he's speaking of Pennsylvania and Virginia, were highly critical of him. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Publications more abusive and scurrilous never saw the light. Than were set forth against Washington and all his leading measures from presses south of New England. But I shall not look them up. I employ no scavengers. No one is in attendance on me, furnishing such means of retaliation. Now, I love how Webster brings up something, but says he's not going to bring up something, something he does about 20 times in these several speeches. Sir, in the course of 40 years, he continues his defense of New England. Sir, in the course of 40 years, there have been undue effervescences of party in New England, and the same thing has happened nowhere else. Party animosity and party outrage, not in New England, but elsewhere, denounced President Washington, not only as a Federalist, but as a Tory, a British agent, a man in his high office who sanctioned corruption. But does the Honorable Member suppose that if I had a tender here, who should put such a fusion of wickedness and folly into my hand, that I would stand up and read it against the South? What was said, sir, or rather, what was not said in those years against John Adams, one of the committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence, and its admitted ablest defender on the floor of Congress, the gentleman wishes to increase his stores of party abuse and frothy violence, if he has a determined proclivity to such pursuits. There are treasures of that sort south of the potomac much to his taste yet untouched i shall not touch them this government mr president from its origin to the peace of 1815 had been too much engrossed with various and other important concerns to be able to turn its thoughts inward and look to the development of its vast internal resources in the early part of president washington's administration it was fully occupied with competing completing its own organization providing for the public debt, defending the frontiers, and maintaining domestic peace. Before the termination of that administration, the fires of the French Revolution blazed forth, as from a new-opened volcano, and the whole breadth of the ocean did not secure us from its effects. The smoke and the cinders reached us, through not the burning lava, difficult and agitating questions, embarrassing to government, and dividing public opinion, sprung out of the new state of our foreign relations and were succeeded by others and yet again by others till they finally issued in the war with england down to the close of that war no distinct market and deliberate attention had been given or could be given to the internal condition of the united states here is webster's argument here and it's an interesting one what he's essentially saying if the government didn't act too much to in- make internal improvements throughout the country during Washington's time, Adams' time. That's because they were busy. At first, the government had its own setup to deal with, and then the French Revolution, and then England. It was not intention that led to the federal government not establishing an internal improvement system, which is important to Webster and probably not as important to Haine at least not as much of a priority, because to finance that, you're probably going to need a tariff, which Hayne doesn't want. On yet another point, I was still more uncountably misunderstood. The gentleman had harangued against consolidation. I told him in reply that there was one kind of consolidation to which I was attached. And that was the consolidation of our union, that this was precisely the consolidation to which I feared others were not attached, and that such consolidation was the very end of the Constitution, the leading object, as they informed us themselves, which its framers had kept in view. I turned to their communication, the letter of the Federal Convention to the Congress of the Confederation, transmitting the plan of the Constitution, and read their very words, The Consolidation of Union and expressed my devotion to this sort of consolidation. I said in terms that I wished not, in the slightest degree, to augment the powers of this government, that my object was to preserve, not to enlarge, and that by consolidating the Union, I understood no more than the strengthening of the Union and perpetuating it. John Quincy Adams said, The speech of Mr. Webster filled almost two sides of the paper, and the other half is to come on Thursday. It is defensive of himself in New England, but carries the war into the enemy's territory. It is a remarkable instance of readiness in debate, a reply at least four hours to a speech of equal length. It demolishes the whole fabric of Haynes' speech, and it leaves scarcely the wreck to be seen. The gentleman said that he wished for no fixed revenue, not a shilling. If, by a word, he could convert the capital into gold... He would not do it. Why all this fear of revenue? Why, sir? Because the gentleman told us it tends to consolidation. Now, again, this is basically what Webster and Hayne are debating here. This is 19th century politics. goes a little bit into the 20th century. You don't want this big pot of money sitting in the federal government for all of these tariffs because we're going to have to spend it and going to have to enlarge the federal government. And it's a mixture of some politicians using that argument because they don't want the government, and some politicians using that argument because they didn't want the tariff. Now, this can mean neither more or less that a common revenue is common interest, and that all common interests tend to preserve the union of the states. I confess I like that tendency. If the gentleman dislikes it, he is right in depreciating a shilling of fixed revenue. So much, sir, for consolidation. I mean, what it really, that argument really boils down to is, why are you getting upset over the federal government growing in its revenues? Because it means America's growing, it means America's larger. And this is a really fundamental American debate. You still, obviously, there's no reason to talk about Hain Webster, except that you hear echoes of it in all of the big government, small government arguments, even today. Webster continues his attack on what he calls the Carolina Doctrine, and I believe that it's a true label because Calhoun is really behind it. He has penned a unpublished letter to the South Carolina legislature. They have not entered it into their record because they felt it was so divisive that a state can essentially nullify laws. But here's what Webster says, kind of trying to expose more of these ideas. There are other proceedings of public bodies which have already been alluded to, and to which I refer again for the purposes of ascertaining more fully what is the length and breadth of that doctrine, denominated in the Carolina Doctrine, which the Honorable Member has now stood up on this floor to maintain. He's referring to when Hain got up, didn't object, and then Hain actually confirmed his feeling about the Constitution and the role of the states in one of them. I find it resolved that the tariff of 1828 and every other tariff designed to promote one branch of industry, the expense of others, is contrary to the meaning and the intention of the Federal Compact, and such a dangerous, palpable, and deliberate usurpation of power by a determined majority wielding the general government beyond the limits of its delegated powers, as calls upon the states which compose the suffering minority in their sovereign Sovereign capacity to exercise the powers of which, as sovereigns, necessarily devolve upon them when their compact is violated. Observe, Sir Webster says, that this resolution holds the Tariff of 1828 and every other tariff designed to promote one branch of industry at the expense of another to be such a dangerous, palpable, and deliberate usurpation of power, as calls upon the states in their sovereign capacity to interfere with their own authority. This denunciation, Mr. President, you will be pleased to observe, includes our old tariff of eighteen sixteen as well as others. Observe again that the qualifications are here rehearsed and charged upon the tariff, which are necessary to bring the case with the gentlemen's within the gentleman's proposition. The tariff is a usurpation, it is a dangerous usurpation; it is palpable, it is deliberate. Here is a case then, within the gentleman's principles and is all his qualifications of his principles. It is a case for action. The Constitution is plainly, dangerously palpable, and deliberately violated. And the states must interpose their own authority to arrest the law. This is Webster stating Haynes' case, not his own. Let us suppose then the state of South Carolina to express the same opinion by the voice of her legislature. That would be very imposing. But what then? Is the voice of one state conclusive? And here's where he's going to nail them. It so happens that at the very moment when South Carolina resolves that the tariff laws are unconstitutional, Pennsylvania and Kentucky resolve exactly the reverse. They hold those laws to be highly proper. And now, how, sir, does the honorable member propose to deal with this case? How does he relieve us from this difficulty upon any principle of his? His construction gets us into it. How does he propose to get us out of it? You see? Carolina has now nullified a tariff. Pennsylvania says it's a good law. If you really go with Haynes' system and you have this confederacy, who decides when there's conflicts between states? And he brings up Massachusetts that was aggrieved by the embargoes of Jefferson and Madison and yet did not rise up or try to nullify anything. He also brings up the case of what if a state like South Carolina nullifies the federal government comes to collect? Who pushes that revenue officer away? It'll be South Carolina, and then Webster says, you have war against the federal government. I mean there's something like 50 pages of this speech it is a long speech that goes on for hours we're not going to recite the whole thing here i'm not even aware of the whole thing being recorded anywhere i could be wrong there are bits of it that have been recorded and are on the internet Let it be remembered that the Constitution of the United States is not unalterable. It is to continue in its present form no longer than the people who established it shall choose to continue it. If they shall become convinced that they have made an injudicious or inexpedient partition and distribution of power between the state governments and the general government, they can alter that distribution at will. But while the people choose to maintain it as it is, while they are satisfied with it and refuse to change it, who has given, or who can give to the state, a right to alter it, either by interference, construction, or otherwise? gentlemen do not seem to recollect that the people have any power to do anything for themselves. They imagine that there is no safety for them any longer than they are under the close guardianship of the state legislatures. (music) Sir, the people have not trusted their safety in regard to the general constitution, to these hands. They've chosen to trust themselves first, just as the people of a state trust their own state government with a similar power. Secondly, they have reposed their trust in the efficacy of frequent elections and in their own power to remove their own servants and agents whenever they see cause.
1: So turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your
0: podcasts. Thirdly, they have reposed trust in the judicial power. Okay, so you see what he's saying here. You can alter the Constitution. You have elections every two years for House members. By the way, he reminds us, people have voted for those federal officers, just like they voted for the state officers. Why should Hain be valuing one over the other? And then lastly, respect for the courts. He adds one more. Finally, the people of the United States have at no time, in no way, directly or indirectly, authorized any state legislature to construe or interpret their high instrument of government much less to interfere by their own power to arrest its course and operation. So that last point is precedent. It's 1830, you know, it's not like 2021 yet, but it is 1830 and you're talking about a good 55 years of independence, you know, like 40 years of uh, constitutional government and no one's done this before. Why is Hayne and behind him Calhoun, he's hinting by saying the Carolina doctrine, why is he suggesting this? I have not allowed myself, sir, to look beyond the Union, to see what might lie hidden in the dark recess behind. I have not coolly weighed the chances of preserving liberty when the bonds that unite us together shall be broken asunder. I have not accustomed myself to hang over the precipice of disunion, to see whether with my short sight I can fathom the depth of the abyss below. Nor could I regard him as a safe counselor in the affairs of this government whose thoughts should be mainly bent on considering not how the Union may best be preserved, but how tolerable might be the condition of the people when it should be broken up and destroyed. While the Union lasts, we will have high, exciting, gratifying prospects spread out before us. Beyond this, I seek not to penetrate the veil. You know, again, it's it's artful language, but you gotta, I mean... You got to look at Webster's speech as any rhetoric. He's telling what he wants to tell. He's saying all these things that he's not going to get into, but he's hinting at it that there's a dark abyss um, if we break up the union. You know, and to be fair, although you know there's a lot of logic to Webster's speech, so he makes the case logically that what Hain is saying is going to break up the union. He never argued in one minute for breaking up that union. And so there will be also criticism of Webster's speech, uh, you know, of how much rhetoric is involved, of how much it's based on emotion and personality versus just logic. But it is pretty long. It's pretty well developed, has a lot of history, and it has a lot of logic. Finally, Webster resorts to just reading the Constitution. The Constitution declares that the laws of Congress passed in pursuance of the Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land. He declares also with equal plainness that the judicial power of the United States shall extend to every case arising under the laws of the Congress. Here is a law then, which is declared to be supreme. He's talking about the tariff. And here is a power established, which is to interpret that law. Now, sir, how has the gentleman met this? Suppose the Constitution to be a compact, yet here are its terms. And how does the gentleman get rid of those terms, right? So... He's going right to the heart of the compact argument that these states just got into a compact and when we don't want to, um, you know, follow any of the rules, we don't have to. But saying, you know, even, even if we accept it's a compact, which it probably isn't, the compact has these rules. The laws of Congress passed in pursuance of the Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land. How has the gentleman met this? He can't argue with the seal of the bond nor the words of the instrument here they are. What answer does he give to them? None in the world, except that the effect of this would be to place the states in a condition of inferiority, and that it results from the very nature of things, there being no superior, that the parties must be their own judges. The gentleman says that if there shall be a power of final decision in the general government, he asks for the grant of that power. Well, sir? I show him the grant. I show him the grant. I turn him to the very words. I show him that the laws of Congress are made supreme. So, it goes on and on, and it goes on and on. The gentleman sees an analogy where I see none. He likens it to the case of a treaty in which there being no common superior each party must interpret for itself under its own obligation of good faith. This is not a treaty, but a constitution of government with powers To execute itself and fulfill its duties. He also throws out there, he argues that if we, the federal government, transgress our constitutional limits, each state can check us. Does he admit that the converse of the proposition is true, that we have a right to check the states? Let's avoid this. And why should we avoid this, Webster says? Well, the honorable gentleman says that the states will only interfere using this power of interference to preserve the Constitution. They will not destroy it. They will not impair it. They will only save it. Ah, sir, this is but the old story. All regulated governments, all free governments, have been broken by similar disinterested and well-disposed interference. It is the common pretense. Webster destroys Hayne in this argument and in the speech. So much so that, I mean, just personally, People are going to be very hesitant to call out Webster again. Um, And uh, while he'll participate in debates, they're going to be very hesitant to call him out again because they know his artfulness. But it's also going to settle for a long period some of these questions about the role of federal and state power. And look, it's fair to think about all the time, does physical might make right? Right. Also, does rhetorical might make right? In politics, sometimes that becomes true. Like, Webster makes a great speech. Haynes, not that good. Webster carries the day. You can make that argument that maybe this is all, you know, a phony discussion because the only reason he, because of his rhetorical skill. But nonetheless, Webster's argument carried, at least in terms of this Congress and how they viewed thing and how they viewed Calhoun's scheme for some time. And it's going to be reinforced when Jackson threatens to send troops to South Carolina to enforce the tariff. But, you you know, you can certainly argue that it's lopsided because he's this great speecher. I mean, of course, Hayne thought on the first day he had him. But I also think it's the weight of the arguments lean towards Webster. There's more arguments in his case. We can overstate the ability of a rhetor to speak and be artful and the like. But there's also something, you know, he might be more right as well. There's more to pull from because he's more right. It's certainly his reading of the Constitution and those arguments are certainly there. It's all available for the taking that what Hain and Calhoun were suggesting is just not present in the document. But here's Webster's real speech. He presents a scenario of what would happen when the federal collector tries to pay the state taxes. Mr. President, the honorable gentleman would be in a dilemma like that of another great general. He must cut it with his sword. He must say to his followers, defend yourself with your bayonets. And this is war. Civil war. He lets that hang a bit. And then the people have preserved this in their own constitution for 30 years for 40 years, and have seen their happiness, prosperity, grow and strengthen. Grow with its growth and strengthen with its strength. It is to the union that we owe our safety at home and our consideration and dignity abroad. It is to that union that we are chiefly indebted for whatever makes us most proud of our country. Webster continues, When my eyes shall be turned to behold for the last time the sun in heaven... May I not see him shining on the broken and dishonored fragments of a once-glorious Union, on states dissevered, discordant, belligerent, on land rent with civil feuds, or drenched, if it may be, in fraternal blood. Instead, let their feeble and lingering glance rather behold the gorgeous ensign of the Republic, now known and honored throughout earth, still high-advanced its arms and trophies streaming in their original luster. Not a stripe erased or polluted, nor a single star obscured, bearing for its motto no such miserable and interrogatory as What is this all worth? Nor those other words of delusion and folly, liberty first and union afterwards. But everywhere spread over in characters of living light, blazing on all its ample folds, as they float over the sea and over the land and in every wind and under the whole heavens. That other sentiment, dear to every true American heart, liberty and union, now and forever, one and inseparable. The room fell hushed when Webster finished. Not a word was uttered, hardly a soul stirred, H.W. Brands describes it. John Calhoun, in the chair, became disconcerted by the silence and the approbation it implied. He swung the gavel and demanded order, order, though no more orderly place existed within 50 miles. Uh, his friend Charles March had said, So Moses might have appeared to the awe-struck Israelites as he emerged from the dark clouds and the thick smoke of Sinai, his face all radiant with the breath of divinity. No one who was not present can understand the excitement at the scene. No one who was can give an adequate description of it. Nearly all those present, including those disagreeing with Webster, were mesmerized. It confirmed what one of Hain's supporters had said when Hayne first made his speech. He has started the lion, but wait till we hear the roar. Uh, Webster's reply to Hayne is reinforced by speeches that Webster will make throughout the rest of his life particularly supporting the union, the strength of the union, the strength of the general government, Webster will be particular supporter of Jackson's force bill when South Carolina will indeed try to nullify a tariff and not apply it to its state. Webster will be, who's not a supporter of Jackson, who's in the opposite party, will nonetheless support his force bill. Here's what James Schuller said, Massachusetts men, gloomy and downcast of late, now walk the avenue as though the fife and drum were before them. Haynes' few but zealous partisans shielded him, still, and South Carolina spoke with pride of him. His speech was indeed a powerful one from its eloquence and personalities, but his standpoint was purely local and sectional. The people read Webster's speech and marked him for the champion henceforth against all assaults upon the Constitution. Uh, so I had on uh, Rob Goodman from the University of Ryerson in Toronto, and he's also a professor of rhetoric and speech. And we talked about Cicero and the importance of speaking. And you see it here, that oration, this is what Cicero believed, is kind of the muscle of a democracy that, that gives it its breath and um, its life. And um, you see that here, because here is Hayne, trying to assert something that really there's very little constitutional basis for, but he might have gotten away with it if merely he was the winning speaker.